You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity, and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. School! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. <laughs> what am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. most excited for you to come. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Midsommar, and the story is as follows. With their relationship in trouble, a young American couple travel to a fabled Swedish Midsummer festival, where a seemingly pastoral paradise transforms into a sinister, tread-soaked nightmare as the locals reveal their terrifying agenda. The film is starring Florence Pugh, Jack Raynor, William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blomgren, Archie Medkew, Alora Torchia, and Will Poulter. It is written and directed by Ari Aster. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Katie Schaefer. Hello, hello. And Dan Baer. Skull. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. I have been dreading this podcast review because I've only seen this film once and I felt very strongly that I needed to get to a theater to see it a second time before today. Uh, unfortunately, I've still only seen it once and I was not able to get to the theater. I took more notes on this movie than any movie I have seen since starting Next Best Picture. Actually, two full pages. That normally never happens. Uh, to conserve space and save uh, 
on uh, notebooks, I try to keep everything to one page, but this one uh, needed two because <laughs> this is a very, very dense movie with a lot packed into it, so much to talk about, both on the surface and below the surface as well. We are going to do our absolute best to talk about this movie. And I think that the best way to do that, I want to be upfront with everyone here, is I think that we should talk spoilers throughout the whole thing. What do you guys think? I think we have to. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we'll do here. Anyone that has not seen Midsommar or Midsommar or Midsummer, how do you say it? Has anyone figured out how to say it? I've been saying it Midsommar, but I, I don't know that that's the actual correct way. <laughs> I think it can be anyway. Yeah. Like, why could it just be spelled with the U? Then I would know how to pronounce it, you know? Because <laughs> in Sweden, it's spelled that way. Yeah. We're not in Sweden. We're in America. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> let's just, let's, how does Ari Aster say it? <laughs> I've only read interviews, not one. No, <laughs> well, in any event, though, we're going to do our best to talk about this movie as honestly as humanly possible, go into every single aspect of it as much as we can. Like I said, I've been dreading this review because I want to do this movie justice. Hereditary was one of my favorite films last year. I think it is the best horror film since the original Exorcist. And I know that that might sound like an unpopular take to some people out there, but I really, in my heart, truly believe that. So I had an incredible amount of hype and anticipation heading into Ari Aster's follow-up here, and it did not disappoint. I keep going back and forth on whether or not I like it more or less, or maybe even the same as Hereditary. It's a little, little tough, and hopefully by the end of this review, I will know my opinion on that. So I want to toss it off to you two first. Katie, we'll start off with you. What did you ultimately think heading into Midsommar? And what did you think? Well, I also really loved Hereditary. I, it was one of my favorite films, period, last year. And I was really anticipating this one. And it looked different. But whenever we're kind of seeing a sophomore effort from a director, I found that it's better to just kind of go in and see what they're going to give us and accept kind of what comes and take it on its own merits. So I really try. I don't always succeed, but I really try. And with this one, I pushed myself even more to just be like, just see what he has to bring us. He could go in a lot of different directions. And this is a very different movie than hereditary. Um, it can evoke the same kind of emotional senses, but it goes in a different direction. It's very bright, whereas Hereditary is very dark. It's colorful and very in your face. The thing I liked about it was the fact that for me, having seen lots of horror movies, um, I kind of I knew what the end was in that. I didn't know what exactly was going to happen at the end, but I knew where this was inevitably going mm. and that, it, you know, death probably waited in the wings for everybody. And I liked that. I like that Aster was like, well, there's not really a good way to hide this. So I'm just going to lay it out from the beginning. And we're just going to have to ride with that dread that continuously builds throughout the whole movie. And I was really impressed by how he was able to tell this story and bring us to a totally different place and still explore concepts with the same kind of depth and nuance that he brings that he brought to hereditary. All right. Okay then. Dan Bear, what about you? Um 
so I also really loved Hereditary. I think it's a near perfect film. Um, I actually, when it came out last year, I dragged someone to see it for the second, my second time, because I really wanted to see it the second time. And I knew that they were probably not exactly the right audience for the movie, but I didn't care. Um, that's how much I liked it and wanted to see it a second time. <laughs> um, so I was very much looking forward to whatever Ari Aster did next. Um, my, my impression. And of course, when I saw that this film had Florence Pugh in it, who was, just like beyond stellar in Lady Macbeth a couple years ago, um, I was even more excited. And I I have to say, I feel like Midsummer is sort of a stereotypical sophomore feature. It is bigger, longer, more ambitious, and not quite as good as the first one. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because while on one level I could agree with you that it may not be as good as Hereditary, um, I think that there are certain areas where Hereditary is better and then I think there are certain areas where Midsummer is also better. And mm-hmm. I keep coming back to, I feel like the two balance each other out. Like there's similar themes between both films that carry over. Uh, yeah. Both films deal with devastating and absolutely terrifying grief um, on a very personal level. And I think that that is both films' hidden key to unlocking how great they are, is that they really, I mean, what happens to Danny in the first opening minutes of this movie? Oh, God. At, At first, I thought to myself, okay, I feel like he, it's, it's fine that he does this again, um, I just don't want this to become a thing for him in every single movie he does beyond this. And he has said as much that he's not going to do a horror film again and that he's going to explore different genres from here on out. Because I do feel that with both Hereditary and Midsummer, when it comes to um, familial grief, I really believe he has said everything that he will ever have to say on the subject. There are characters in this movie that are writing their thesis while they are traveling to <laughs> Sweden. And I feel like Ari Aster has written his own thesis on grief totally. with both of these movies. Yeah. So I really don't want him to go back to this anytime soon necessarily. And at first I thought to myself, okay, he's kind of repeating himself a little bit. And I don't know if I so much like interpreted it as, is he just trying to perfect what he did before? Is he just trying to tell it in a different way? I I was a little unsure at first because those first opening minutes, I just thought to myself, uh, I want to see something different from him. By the end of the movie, I realized how different this movie totally was. It is bigger, Mm -hmm. like you said, Dan. It is more ambitious. And in that regard, I do think that that is the one fault of the movie is that it may, with its runtime and just how overly ambitious it is, it it, it may just, just, uh, like, it's just short of the mark. Just short. Where Hereditary yeah. was, like, the perfect length, perfect pacing, and it told its story in a very concise manner. Midsummer is, like, trying to blow this up. It's a bigger cast, bigger setting, bigger production value, 
bigger runtime. Everything is just bigger, 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 bigger. But yet he wants to tell this very personal story. And it's not so much about the grief of what happens to Danny's uh, sister and her parents in the beginning of this film. It's about this relationship that she has with Jack Raynor mm-hmm. and how he is just completely inept at being able to... Well, at anything, really. Oh, <laughs> that guy. Yeah, no, he he is... <sighs> I I actually think it's maybe the most fascinating aspect of the entire movie. And I think Ari Aster knows this as well. Here's a guy who is in this relationship with this girl and they're both young. So you know that he and her are probably, you know, things are good for a little while. They've been together for, what is it, four years? Yeah. (laughs) She like corrects him at one point. (laughs) It's three and a half. Uh, Four, excuse me. Exactly. (laughs) He doesn't even know how long they've been together. Uh, It's just very clear that he wants out of this. And for reasons that maybe, for to a certain extent, I can understand. She does have a bipolar sister. I'm sure that she projects her problems at home uh, onto him. And for him, this guy who just wants to kind of hang with his friends, explore life and everything. Like, he doesn't need that. And there's a relatability in that, but also at the same time, he lacks empathy for her. And so while I understand the mindset, I disagree with his decision-making and how he chooses to um, comfort her, how he chooses to listen to her, which he really does not do. He, like, rarely ever listens to her. And it's just a really toxic relationship for the both of them. And I thought to myself, like, oh, my God, like in this kind of scenario where you have something truly horrific like that happen to you in your life, I can totally understand why he doesn't dump her. Mm-hmm. I, I, I fully understand why he stays together with her. Well, I, it makes sense. Like, you don't want to add to that person's grief, right? No. And you certainly care about them in a way that, like, you want to be there for them and you don't want them to have, like, the – you don't want them to, you know – feel in a place so low. Like, they've hit rock bottom, you don't want to push them further. Um, But at the same time, like, thinking back on the movie, Christian never once makes a decision. To do what? To do anything. No, he He, just kind of goes along with He just kind of goes along with the flow. He's like, it's not a... His staying with Danny isn't really about her. It's about him saying, well... I don't want to break up with her, but also I don't want to stay with her. But in this point, it's easier to stay with her. So I'll just stay with her. He always chooses the path of least resistance. Yes, exactly. Whatever's easiest for him, even if it means like kind of more work in the long run. You know, like staying with Danny requires him to do all of this stuff. Mm. But it's easier than dealing with the fact that he'll kind of be the asshole if he breaks right. up with her. Even if it's better for both of them in the long run, he's still like, mm-hmm. eh, I don't want to. I'd be yeah. mean. I don't want to be the bad guy. <laughs> Which That's is the same reason why he invites her on the trip. Like, it's right. easier to just have her with them and not have to deal with her complaining about the fact that he's going. Yeah, he feels guilty if he doesn't. Yeah. Or his own assholeish behavior of not dealing with it beforehand. Like, there's nothing right. wrong with him yes. going to Sweden. Like, that's mm. fine if he wants to go do that. But it is a dick move to be like, <laughs> I've been planning this for eight months with all my bros, but I'm not going to tell you about it until you just find out two weeks in advance. It's like, well, if you dealt with it and said something earlier, then there wouldn't be this problem. Like, you're making the problem by not 
owning your desires and owning your feelings and, you know, taking ownership of all of that. I, I was really not expecting this from this movie, but I <laughs> I don't think I've seen a film that is so anti a very American form of masculinity written and directed by a cis straight white American man. Oh, I mean, like he gaslights her at every turn. She is constantly making excuses for him when she doesn't have to, which just infuriates me throughout the movie, especially considering what she has been through. And when she actually, when who, who's the one that tries to, uh, it's, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's the one, the the Swedish, the Swedish friend. Oh, uh, Pele. Pele. Yeah, when Pele actually levels with her and asks her, do you feel held by him? Does he feel like home to you? And he tells her, you know, I've gone through my own tragedy as well. And he tries to relate to her. It's just, it's it's like, Christian is so dull. (laughs) It's just like, like, there's a very, very simple way to approach this, but he is just so incredibly uh, self-centered that I, I it, what I love what I also love about this movie as it pertains to his character and what I find so fascinating about this movie is the way that it does end for him in the bear costume <laughs> burning alive <laughs> at the hands of Danny by you know by her command ultimately because she does have the power to stop this hmm. she essentially purges herself of him and let's go of this relationship. And I found myself wondering, yes, he was an asshole, but did he deserve that? That's exactly what I thought when I said, when yeah. uh, my partner and I left, I was like, well, he kind of deserved that. And he looked at me and he's like, did he? You think so? And I was like, <laughs> I stopped and thought about it and I was like, yeah, I feel like he kind of did, though. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I, I think he kind of did, too, especially considering that the whole movie, you could tell that he just wants to cheat on her. He d- he just wants to get out and, you know, be with another woman the same way that uh, Will Poulter is there just to pretty much hook up with a Swedish woman. But he feels like he's constricted to this relationship and that he can't enjoy himself the same way that everyone else is trying to on this trip. And so when he actually does finally give in to that and he does have sex with the woman and it's I think it does ultimately get it depends how you want to look at the ending. Are you looking at the ending literally or are you looking at it symbolically that that's where I think the does does he deserve it or does he not deserve it uh, comes into play there. I, it's really funny because in listening to the audience during the movie was almost as good as watching the movie itself, right? Um, because as more and more like things keep happening to Kristen, like the audience is like, oh man, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like as the movie went on, they're like, dude, this guy's an asshole. Fuck you. Yeah, you deserve it. And then at that end, that end happens and she Florence Pugh lets out that freaking brilliant smile at the end and you could feel the dead silence in the whole audience like oh is this too far yeah exactly like you could I could feel everyone being like oh shit I mean yeah he deserved it but 
I don't know if you deserve that. Right. To be the full sacrifice of all of her pain. Yeah. And to like, and like all of them to be burning alive. Well, it's interesting too, because uh, he's in the bear costume and the bear, I think is obviously symbolic of um, masculinity. Uh, It's uh, like, it's a little, it's almost too obvious. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense there. It's a great visual. Well, it's also like monster, right? And he's like coming into this community and God, him and uh, William Jackson Harper's character, like (sighs) doing research and trying to explain this and all this nonsense. And like, I thought that was (laughs) really kind of beautiful. Right, he takes advantage of everything. Everything. Anything he can, like, pull onto himself and just, and easily, as long as he doesn't have to Mm -hmm. do any, like, real work for it. Then it just, he feels like someone who is just, like, an emotional leech. Because as, as much as, like... Danny is definitely they ha- they have a very codependent relationship, and but as much as Danny is the one who's very needy, he like uses her to feel good about himself. Like, yeah. oh, look, I'm taking care. I'm so selfless taking care of her. <laughs> only I can help her. And look at what a great man I am. You know, like, but and he he does that with everything. He does, but I don't even know that he would. I don't know that he actually believes that about himself in relation to Danny. Uh, no, like but he'll he say that, right? But I don't think he actually believes it. I think he feels like he is, but he also knows deep down inside he's that, like, he's kind of a piece of shit. Yeah, he does. He absolutely does. He though, because if he did, and he d- if he did realize that he is a piece of shit, wouldn't then we as an audience have empathy for him because he. I mean, well, I guess then it depends on if he chooses now that he realizes that what he what he chooses to do with that information. Right. No. And that's why you see him like when he right before he goes and has sex with the other woman, you see him going through this like internal agony of gut wrenching. uh, What am I going to do? Oh, this is inevitable. Like, I can't even stop myself. And like, I think he knows throughout the movie, but it's that he continually chooses to just keep going with it and say, I might be an asshole, but this is worth it for me. Well, hear me out here for a second, because what happens to Danny in the beginning, you could argue that her entire home is taken away from her. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. She, loses her her whole family in one fell swoop. And so the whole movie then is about Danny going back to uh, when Pele asks her, does he feel like home to you? It's all about Danny uh, finding a new home for herself. She's in this wide open, very bright, very green field, and yet she feels more isolated than ever in this environment. And gradually, as the movie goes along, she does find a home again with this community and she feels like she's a part of something and she wants Christian to be a part of that with her. But when he does make that decision, um, then we get the ending. And for me, the way that the music kind of uh, plays throughout that final sequence and that smile at the end, I definitely walked away from this movie initially with the feeling of what a cathartic emotionally powerful ending for this character to I don't want to say be at peace again because you know she'll probably never be fully at peace necessarily but 
in the end, I think that she got what it was that she needed. And I think now as I'm kind of talking through this, my opinion on what happens to Christian burning inside the temple, I'm, I'm totally actually okay with it, both on a literal and also on a <laughs> yeah, symbolic level. Because I, I think that y- you're right. He, there are a series of choices that he makes throughout the story where he does deserve this. And, and I think in both senses. I'm not condoning murder here, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> but I am but I am kind of like, I, I, I understand what Ari Aster wanted us to feel. And I felt, I felt it. I truly felt it by the time it was over. Um, I had butterflies in my stomach walking out of the theater. I was so, yeah. so excited for Danny. And I was excited for just this movie <laughs> taking me through this experience of grief. And to me, it's just... It's a more optimistic ending than what Hereditary gave us, I think. Really? Absolutely. I, oh, I totally, I totally think so. I had the opposite I, thought. To me, no really? one made it out of this movie alive. To me, this is the same kind of ending as Hereditary in that Danny, she's gotten a cathartic release, but she is no longer herself. In order to do that, Her she side. had to completely sacrifice everything that she is to now subsume herself within this community like she has something but what did she give up to do that because even though like choosing to kill her boyfriend allows her to put all of this pain and emotion on like the you know the altar of whatever like cathartic release like that's a you you lose something of yourself as a human when you choose to kill somebody else like that, especially when you've had this relationship. And like in the end, when she gives that big smile mm-hmm. to me, I was like, is this a smile of like, I've finally given up everything and I can just be a part of this community and I don't have to think about the grief I've gone through. I don't have to think about it and really process it. I can just put it over there and it's done with. And, like, that's not the healthy way to deal with what she went through. The healthy way is to live it and experience it and move through it. And she just instead sacrifices it. So now she can almost give up being Danny. Let's explore that for a minute. I want to get I want to get your opinions on how the community chooses to deal with such complex emotions and um, the concepts of grief and death and their explanation behind you know, like that scene on the cliff, for example. Oh, God. It's like, you know, I'm like, wow, the movie's making a comment on euthanasia over here. Like, yeah. this, is, <laughs> this is pretty heavy stuff. And I, I just want to get your opinions on that because obviously there is a mindset, there is a lifestyle that the way that it is explained to these characters, it does two things. One is that it attempts to justify it. And two, it also kind of transforms this movie from a what we all perceive to be would be a horror film into, I would argue it's definitely a psychological horror film more so, and definitely a drama. Uh, This movie has only one jump scare in it, for the record. Only one. Mm. The rest is all just unnerving suspense and dread that something awful is going to happen. But these people present themselves in all white, all smiles, bright light, and attempting to get us, the audience, and these characters to see these really dark aspects of reality in a totally different light. What do we all think about that? Um, I, I thought about this a lot. Um, there, were, there were essentially three 
scenes where the movie that sort of clicked the movie into place for me. Um, one was that scene that you were talking about between Pele and uh, Danny. I like Florence Pugh, but that's no <laughs> between Pele and. Danny. We'll just call her Queen throughout okay, the rest of this episode. Throughout the rest of this review, yeah. <laughs> Queen Danny, <laughs> Queen Pugh. <laughs> We we right. salute, we bow. Yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> so anyway, the, the first scene was that scene between Pele and Danny when he Queen Danny when he <laughs> says like he, that line that he says, like, does he feel like home for you? Does do you feel held by him? You know, I had an entire community around me when I lost my parents. In a fire. So of course the whole movie I'm thinking about, did they was it an accidental fire or was it a ritual fire? Oh, it was right. definitely a ritual fire. But then again, then again, this does only supposedly happen every 90 years. Years, exactly. Yeah, so I, I didn't know what to make of that, but I guess we're supposed to read into it that there was something yeah, sinister to it. Natural, yeah. Um, and the the third, the second one was at the very end when um, Danny is like um, walking in front of the flame in that, cape of flowers and is just like completely weighed down by these flowers these things of nature these living breathing um things uh, the middle one was after she sees christian in the ritual sex hut um and is that what we're calling it yes yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> and she is just completely subsumed by grief and doubled over. And the women surround her and reflect what she's feeling back at her. And then sort of they all communally release it into this world. And this primal yeah. scream of just like everything of – femininity of grief of hurt of anger of like everything um and that i was like okay so whereas hereditary was very much about internal grief and dealing with it by yourself midsummer is about the communal experience of grief and how in the face of unspeakable tragedy that kind of falls apart right because the these the community is not really experiencing the same grief as someone who is close to the people who are dying is experiencing. They're you know when the, the everything goes up in flames at the end, they're all it's performative. Yes, performative. They're screaming and beating themselves and throwing themselves around and you know mashing on the ground and all this stuff. But it's not really real so that catharsis is it's there but it's also not fully like even though they're doing their best to help danny in this moment there's this sense with her that you can feel that it's not real she she and she knows that like right even even though like and, and it's going to and communal grief like having people support you in that moment should feel should feel good but this doesn't and and you can see it on her face throughout the rest of the movie she she's completely devoid of anything 
in that in her face. She is devoid of any emotions. She doesn't feel anything after that. Right. It feels like the whole community wants to be like one organism. Yeah. Like to put it in uh, nerd terms, it feels like this is the Borg. Like they, yeah. they, they all want to <laughs> be one entity all moving together and reflecting, uh, reflecting all of the emotional turmoil that each individual feels becomes like a group thing. And so it leeches it all away. And so Danny doesn't get to really experience it. She's just kind of brought into the fold. And because everyone is faking it, more or less, yeah, it becomes this very unreal thing. Like in the scene on the cliffs, when those people are dying, everyone's like acting all upset. And it's like, well, you're not the one who just jumped off a cliff and have your legs broken off. Like, this oh, is... God, that was awful. It feels so, so fake and therefore yeah. unreal. Well, Aaron, that was the... And- I didn't even. I I love the the Borg re- reference, Katie. It felt but so I, true. Uh, but my mind didn't even go there because when so when Danny is tripping and having these visions, it's always of seeing her like, like you know, watch seeing the grass grow through her feet or seeing her feet turn into roots that go back into the grass. Oh my god! And there yes. were more than a few moments in this movie where I had to mentally ask <laughs> myself, did my eyes just deceive me or did I really yeah. just see something? Yeah. <laughs> and like, this movie and, has the best representation of hallucinogens yes. I have ever seen. Oh god, yes. There are uh, certain things that I've seen in movies lately. Um, I'm thinking of the final ten minutes of Annihilation or the entirety of Climax where, or even maybe uh, the the dance, the final dance sequence in Suspiria, yeah. where while watching them, I felt like I was on drugs. D- this movie did that also. And I, 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 I definitely, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I have this appreciation for movies that make me feel that way. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Because it's such a difficult, it's such a difficult thing to describe. <laughs> right. You know, such a difficult thing to like put because everyone's experience is so singular. So it's very difficult to put something on screen that feels universally true about those experiences. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I'm watching the flowers and I'm like, are they yeah. like, are the flowers are breathing? breathing? Like yeah. what is happening? <laughs> oh my like God. The, yes. The buildings in the oh, background wow. are all just kind of waving. It's not yeah. super dramatic, but it's enough that like if you've it, done acid or mushrooms, you're like, that's about seven hours into the trip right there. That's what it looks like. <laughs> it was it was perfect. And I remember when they uh, were all getting together and they're like, oh, yeah, we're here. This is what we came here for, to do drugs in this environment. And it's going to be <laughs> awesome because that's what we do as young kids, you know. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I get this. Like, I understand. And in my mind, though, I'm like, oh, but she shouldn't be doing that. She yeah. should not be doing that. Not after what she's just no. been through. She's definitely going to go on a bad trip. And... Sure enough, (laughs) you know, the obvious happens. And I have to say, what really makes Florence Pugh's performance in this movie for me, um, I will will come clean and I will admit that it's not as strong for me personally as what Tony Collette did in Hereditary. However, I think that Florence Pugh does panic-stricken grief so well in this movie her uh anxiety her heavy breathing when she has to try to compose herself the 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 minute the um 
like there's just like these split seconds where she seems fine, like she seems like she has it all together, and then somebody mentions family or something like that, and you just see the switch mm. just go off in her, and she needs to get away from everybody, and she just needs to be. She needs to be held by somebody, really, but she instead goes off to be alone. And she she just nails it. Oh, my God. It was so, yeah. so, I, like, I felt that. I really, really felt that in her performance tremendously. There's something about the way, too, that, like, she keeps apologizing and then taking it back. Yeah. <laughs> you have nothing to apologize for. Nothing. But the way she apologizes and then almost immediately takes it back. Like, I'm so sorry. No, no, I don't mean to be sorry. Um, There is something about that, that that is a very like socially constructed feminine thing to do is to apologize Mm -hmm. for these things that you shouldn't be apologizing for. But the way she does it, I didn't, I felt, that it was more motivated by her grief and her the, the warring inside her between needing to be alone and needing to be held by someone, right? You know, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, it, I was like, oh, my God, I've done that. Like, I've done that when I've been I feeling really I do that really all terrible. the time. Yeah. Well, there were many times throughout this movie where I didn't know if – if what she needed was to be alone or if she did need to be with someone, if she did need to be with someone, who would it be? And the film, I think, wrestles with that question. It never I don't think it ever directly answers it until obviously the very, very end. And even then, it's still a little unclear. Has she, you know, when she when she gets rid of Christian out, out of her life, is she alone in that moment? Does, is she with the community, like, does she feel like she has found home again? Is homes just something that you find internally within yourself? And I think that one of the symbols, or at least something I picked up on while watching the movie, was Aster's use of mirrors in this, uh, especially in the first act. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of shots that reflect in a mirror, and I think that was all about us having to uh, look internally within ourselves to examine um, our own trauma, grief, identity, and just desires, ultimately. Yeah. That was something that I thought was really, really, really well executed by him. And it's one of those things, too, that it, I, I, I struggle if it draws attention to itself or not. I mean, obviously, when I just mentioned it there, did you guys pick up on it? Or was it subtle enough that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I felt the same way, but like I noticed the mirrors and then I noticed how everyone is reflecting back the emotional state. Any if there is a more heightened emotional state around them, then they go to that the community mm-hmm. specifically, not the rest of the characters. But and I felt like because there aren't really any mirrors as far as I remember in the um, except for one or two. There's the one, the, the yes. one the in one like or- the uh, the outhouse, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then other than that, it feels like it moves from being a reflection of the world to being a ref- that we can see to being a reflection of the emotional state with other people as the mirror. And I think there's something also, too, just from a craftsmanship standpoint, you're going to hear me use that term uh, again later on. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a shot in the movie where they actually enter into um, this 
what feels like an otherworldly place. Like it doesn't feel like it's part of the planet. <laughs> yeah. And the camera, as they're in the car, tilts and everything goes upside down. Yep. That was perfect. That Amazing. Was so perfect. That was the moment where I was like, all right, now we're entering Aster's different world. This is Yep. This is a new world. Welcome to the Upside Down, everybody. Yeah. I wanted to go back one second to about the Tony Collette and Florence Pugh. And I mm. thought, <clears throat> I totally agree that Pugh isn't in the same place as Colette. And that's because Colette has, what, 30 years of <laughs> acting and experience on Pugh, I think. But I also really like the fact that Aster uses this grief and it's this very intense grief. There are a couple of shots in this movie and Hereditary that are almost exactly the same. Yes. Um, the two women kneeling on the floor screaming yeah. in pain. And it's interesting to me because it feels like Colette's grief is the grief of a mother. The gr And kind of the grief of a daughter. This complex, weird grief. Yeah. But she's this older woman who has so much more strength underneath and belief in who she is that she has fought intensely to get because of how her mother was and then pew it feels like this is the grief of a daughter this is the grief of someone who's young and hasn't found themselves quite yet mm -hmm. but it's such an interesting comparison how the two women kind of perform the same emotion but they do it in such a different way while still looking very similar like i thought aster must be a really great director to his actors and actresses because oh yeah he's able to bring out these reactions to people i mean pew had me right away in her first shot of the film where it's this unbroken single shot of her on a phone yep talking to yeah and yeah. It, <laughs> What, what like amazed me right away, I mean, she already impressed me a lot in Lady Macbeth, but that opening phone call lasts for a good, what, five, seven minutes, something along those lines. Like, it's long, and she goes through a wide, wide stretch of emotions during that phone call. Oh, God, yes. Oh, and she's so not horrible. acting opposite anybody. And I was like, wow, I'm like, she's really, really going to be delivering something really special throughout this film. And yes, when you have a two and a half hour, near two and a half hour runtime, you can obviously get that out of your actors as a result. What I didn't expect, though, from an acting standpoint in this movie or even a writing standpoint with this movie, I did not anticipate this movie to be as funny as it was. Yeah. What did you guys oh, think God, of the yes. humor? I felt some places I was <laughs> and some places I was like not the place for it bro I, no honestly I wanted more of Will Poulter in this movie because for me he was stealing the show so much at times oh. he was so funny and that's why the whole thing like I said earlier about this being like <laughs> ridiculous almost ridiculously anti-American it is anti-masculinity and it's so amazing <laughs> And it's all in Will Poulter's character. It's in Jack Rayner's character. Like, how the the things that they do, like, yeah, they're kind of awful, but they're awful in a very specifically American way. American college males. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And it, and it never does There's humor in horror movies that distracts you from what's going on, and it feels out of place because it's not deliberate. It's us yeah. projecting our own... Um, lightheartedness onto something that is clearly disturbing or unnerving us and we're just trying to break that so the audience will laugh at things 
to make themselves feel better while watching it, but this is not intentional by the filmmaker. In Midsummer, it is 1,000% intentional on Astor's part because he knows that if this movie was completely humorless, people are going to find moments to want to laugh at how ridiculous some of this stuff is anyway. So why not just go along with it and add it into the characters and into the screenplay? Why not have uh, a woman push Jack Raynor's ass while he's like fucking this girl (laughs) and have him just do these reaction shots? Why not? (laughs) Funniest sex scene I think I've ever seen. But it's supposed to be like, and that was what I thought was actually just another layer of brilliance with this movie was here is a filmmaker that I think is in complete control of everything it is that he is doing here in terms of tone. I... (laughs) God, that scene. Oh my god. Then he runs he runs out and it's broad daylight. Oh god, there is so much dong flapping in this movie. I was amazed. Oh my god, it was and of course like it's bright red. Yes. Because, like, oh my god, it's right. been there. So awful. But at the same time, it's it works. It works. The, it works. There's so just well. dong everywhere. Yeah, it's just dong hanging out. And, and you'll notice that there is very little at least I noticed there was very little um, breasts, like attract, like where women are placed as like sexual objects in this movie. Like men are far more sexual objects than the women in this movie. Like the women are in control of all of the sex. Oh my god! The um the the scene where they're like um the two uh, British tourists are like what's that over there and their guide was like we can go look at it and it's this tapestry and it's as it scrolls backwards you realize what it's really about yep mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and I was I I just remember my reaction going like oh okay oh 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 yeah <laughs> oh well oh. then well, okay then. There's a lot of hidden imagery in this movie that uh, this is the shame of me only seeing it one time and not seeing it a second time. There's a lot of symbolism early oh, on gosh. in the film that hints to the events that will happen later. Uh, some of them was a little obvious, such as the bear. Uh, that was definitely something that uh, spoke to me. Something else, though, and I wanted to ask you guys this because I have a note written down here and I don't know if it's something that Aster is doing intentionally. Is there some sort of a shared universe concept with the engraved symbols between Hereditary's cult and also in Midsummer. <laughs> I don't I know, but I add the same about, question. <laughs> I was totally thinking about the Ari Aster cinematic universe when this was, <laughs> when it, like, it started and, you know, in a very similar vein to Hereditary, and then we got the pagan symbols. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like we're going to get a uh, third film in the trilogy and it's going to be Alex Wolf and Florence Pugh, Pyman and Queen May. And they're going to just like take over the fucking earth. Yeah. <laughs> I would be sure for that, honestly. I would be so there for it. <laughs> oh, man. No, there's a lot of stuff throughout this. A lot. And I'm sure there's also symbolism in this that unless if you do individual research on your own, we may not be able to understand just from watching the movie. I'm sure there's a lot of added layers in this that, uh, you know, will definitely be dissected and uh, pulled apart over time. This is not a movie that you just watch one time and you're 
kind of done no. with it. It depends. I think some people won't be able to watch it again. I think some oh, people, yeah. it'll be like hereditary. I know more than one person who's like, well, it's a great movie, but I can't ever watch it again. Mm-hmm. I wanted to address that, actually, because it, it sounds yeah. like all three of us are obviously positive on the movie. So I do want to kind of add a little bit here for those that are not positive on it and try to address that a little bit. Because I have heard, th- this is the common theme I've been hearing. I've been hearing that those that did not like Hereditary like Midsummer. Oh, really? Yes. That's shocking to me. That, yeah, that's weird. This is so much more. <laughs> yeah. It's so much longer. Yeah. And that was the thing. Like, it's it's not just that it's longer, but it's much more leisurely paced. Um, yeah. Or, it's very, I mean, very patient. But, but deliberately. Mm-hmm. Like, leisurely but deliberate. And I didn't really realize that was a thing. And until I just said that, but like it's it's a very apt description of this movie, I think. Well, have either of you seen The Wicker Man? Yes. Okay. So besides not the bees, not the bees, uh, yes. the biggest thing about that movie is it is very slow and it takes forever to get going. And then once we hit the once it finally reaches a point, it hits the ground running and shit just goes nuts. And that's what I kept coming back to as I was watching this movie, because from about the once they hit Sweden, I was like, oh, we got a real Wicker Man situation going on here. All right. Because it's totally that kind of film. But I feel like these kind of movies kind of have to be slower paced in order for it to ramp up that dread. Well, it depends on what kind of a horror film you're trying to make. Are you trying to make a studio entertaining horror film that's just filled with jump scares from the get go and tries to sustain that throughout? Or are you trying to make... A horror film that isn't really a horror film. Well, there's there's lots of different kinds of horror mm-hmm. films. I sure. Think, yeah. I think this is definitely a horror movie. I, I think this is one of those where I could categorize it as a different genre that has horror elements built into it. But when I'm comparing this to something like The Conjuring, it, it, it like to me, they're not the same. I, th- I think that's why it's kind of shocking that people who didn't like Hereditary... Like, well, I mean, I guess it determines on why people didn't like Hereditary. I think that's the key there. Yeah. And what I've heard is that um, people that did like Hereditary, um, I, 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 here's what I've been hearing, too. The thing that works in this movie's favor is that Hereditary has come out. Everybody knows it's from the same guy that made Hereditary. And most of us have seen Hereditary. And you probably have an opinion on Hereditary. Yeah. It either worked for you or it didn't. So heading into Midsommar, this is... And when you hear people say, oh, it's very similar to Hereditary, people are going in with the right expectation this time. And I think that that's yielding um, a better result. I think where people are having problems with the movie are in terms of its length, its pacing. And I think there's some I think there's some gender dynamics that people are just on a personal level um, not okay with in certain circumstances. And that's okay. I can't argue with that. I think it's going to be a very personal movie, like Hereditary, where Mm -hmm. how your personal experiences have led you. You know, everybody brings something with them to every movie. That's that's why they're so good and why we all love movies. But and this movie in particular twists its way through all of these complex ideas like Dan's talking about with American masculinity and like what I'm talking about with codependency and Matt, you're talking about like the craftsmanship involved in this. I think it really, 
this is a really specialized film in my mind, that this is a movie that if you are really interested in the whys of why characters do things and how we get from the point A to the final of the movie, I think it's going to hit you well. But I think if you're someone who is more interested in like just kind of sitting back and enjoying it and watching something, I don't know that this movie is necessarily going to work for you because so much of what it you know, engages its audience on is the underlayers of the film and like what's going on that you see beyond the surface. Yeah. See, like for me, mm-hmm. I don't typically do well with slower paced films and I really, really don't do well with slower paced films that are long. Mm-hmm. However, if there is a lot of uh, if there's if there's a lot of if there's a lot packed into it on a technical craftsmanship level. And it's all in service to the story. And there's a lot of symbolism. And the movie's just getting me to engage with it throughout. I I can really, really, really bypass my apprehension with that. I know that there are some people that don't give a shit about the filmmaking and are just watching the story. And if it's two hours and 20 minutes long and it's this leisurely paced, like you say, Dan, it's going to be a miserable experience for them one way or another. Especially when they get to the end. And they're like... What the hell just happened? <laughs> right, it will totally feel unearned if you are not watching this uh-huh. movie and like really engaged in it. You'd be like, "What? How the fuck did we end up here? How, what are these people even doing this for? Like, why is this happening?" You'll have no idea. But even if you miss out on like that little moment where, you know, it totally telegraphs what happens on the cliff when they when Pele is talking mm-hmm. about the cycles of their life and oh well, what happens at seventy two? And he just draws the finger over his throat like i saw that and was like oh right we're gonna see some people die and (laughs) but if you miss that or you're not listening to it like it's you're gonna be like okay why are they killing these old people what's happening here i've even heard some people have a take on this movie where they got everything that aster intended for them to get out of this and it actually believe it or not left them wanting more and they actually feel it's too simple because the movie is overly explained. Really? Like it isn't it isn't thematically ambiguous to them. I I don't know how you can come away thinking that this isn't ambiguous. That feels, that <laughs> like, feels really pretentious to me. Yeah. <laughs> it, like it is okay. about too many things to be definitive about any of them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, hundred Then again, I also think that that comes back to what we were saying before in terms of it depends on what you are personally bringing to the experience. Right, totally. Yeah. If you have your mind made up about certain things and you're not willing to engage in the dialogue or the conversation over, say, Christian's, um, you know, uh, his morality and whether or not if he deserved what happened to him and your mind is just made up on it. Well, that's one aspect of the movie that we could spend a while talking about that, you know, for you, it's just one and done. (laughs) You know, these kind of films, it's all about being curious, like you that's my personal take on all movies is you should go in being curious as to what is this filmmaker trying to say in general, not talking about, you know, transformers or Kong skull Island or whatever, but especially for these kinds of movies, it's what is going on under the surface and how did this filmmaker create this world and this story and all of these ideas that are all twining together. Like that's what I go to movies for. And that's what Aster is bringing here is if you have curiosity about about it, then this movie has a lot for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that yeah. wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, as 
people have gathered over the years of listening to this show. That's what I love to I love walking away from a movie having different things to talk about, different bullet points and different interpretations. And that's what I live for when we come to these podcast reviews is hearing your takes on them and asking questions, exploring different things. I don't necessarily like having my mind made up on certain things that the film is telling me. I like having my mind made up on whether or not if I like it or not. But there are uh, certain questions and certain thematic uh, things about this story that I want to be able to explore. I want to be able to come back to it. I want to be able to show it to someone and find out what they think about it. I, I like. I can't wait to show this to my sister. I'm like. I'm like oh, <laughs> counting down the Same. days. Like, there's a huge <laughs> horror nut. So she just been like, she was so pissed that I was going to go see it before her. I was like, I'll let you know how it is. And I know she's. She'll either hate this movie or love it. Mm-hmm. And that's is not gonna like this. <laughs> no, I I think that this is not a type of movie where you end up somewhere in the middle. You either really really love it or you really hate it. I I have heard some people walk away from it saying, "I feel like I am like supposed to hate it, but I can't help but love it." You know what I mean? Like I've heard that from some folks that I think it's very very interesting that. Their own like moral values are like telling them you should hate this, but the filmmaking is so good. The performance by Florence Pugh is so good. The supporting actors are also really, really great. There's so much to appreciate in this that I feel like they just feel compelled to want to fight against that. Um, and then, and then there's the opposite end of that too. There's some people who deep down want to love it, and then there are just certain things about it that keep them from uh, loving right. it wholeheartedly. It doesn't so work for them, it doesn't hit yeah. them at the right points. But I think that that is the hallmark of a great movie in many, many ways. I, you know, there are certain movies out there that when we all universally are on board with them, uh, those movies are the ones that typically do end up on your, you know, best of the decade list and things like that, just because of general uh, consensus, right? Right. The Godfather, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Surely. Oh, those exactly. are universally appreciated for their craftsmanship and everything that's going on inside the story. And someone who's like, those are just bad movies. It's like, well, you, no. you just don't know what good movies are. You might have not liked it, yeah. but it's a great movie. But like uh, ones I'll come up with, like off the top of my head here, movies like Suspiria, this Assassination Nation, The House That Jack Built. Annihilation. Annihilation, mm-hmm. like movies where people will have a very, very passionate response, either positive or negative. Let's talk about that. Let's let's like really examine that and find out why and not just default to, oh, it, I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. Let's ask why. Yeah. You know, I, I think that is the best thing about movies like this that are you know, the challenge that comes along with them. Um, I don't want to veer too, too much off course here. I want to just tackle one last uh, point and then we'll move on to any final thoughts that we did not talk about here. Uh, The final point is, you guessed it, the craftsmanship. (laughs) (laughs) Editing, production design, cinematography, score, my fucking Christ. (laughs) This movie. I was shocked to see that this was not the same guy who did the score for Hereditary. Yeah. Because it sounded very similar. Similar, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I just listened to it uh, before we actually hopped on to the uh, podcast here. The final track that plays over um, the last couple of scenes of the movie before it cuts to the credits, that, that's going to go down as one of my favorite tracks of the year by far. It's incredible. Yeah, it feels like such a piece of the film. I think that's the craftsmanship that was the best for me is that this whole movie feels like it is of a piece. Yes. 
I don't think I've ever seen cinematography like this before. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it so bright and blown out. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, that was a risk. Some some of the details were lost in terms of like the whites. Yeah. But and I've seen that like used stylistically in certain scenes in movies before, but I've never seen it used consistently like this throughout an entire film. Oh yeah. And that was really really cool. Uh, we talked before about the visual effects, very subtle. And if you, uh, you know, like sometimes they happen in the background or corner of the screen and you don't know necessarily what your eyes are like trying to tell you to focus on. It's, it's that's really, really cool. And the flowers. That's yeah. something that like I kind of you notice and it's like, oh, God, oh, God. And then it stops mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it comes back during these intense moments and and like the design of the dancing. Where all they're all wearing those beautiful dresses and yeah. how they're all moving together mm-hmm. and it all, especially with how it plays in with the score, it gets so beautifully choreographed, and it's just it's kind of a smallish moment in the film, but it's something that's so artfully done that it can feel that way. And I also got to say too, one of the things that stood out to me a lot in Hereditary were some of the match cuts that the editing did. Yeah, there are a ton of them in this movie. Yes. Where the transitions from scene to scene and how they just kind of, uh, they just, in a, in a snap, they can just like jump from one shot to the other and it just feels like so seamless the yeah. way that it is. Um, Smooth. Uh, from, a, from a pre-production standpoint, if he storyboarded this, like it just, it, it just comes across so evidently that Ari Aster has thought about this and he's not just winging it on set. I love that. I love that there is meticulous care put into every single frame of this movie. That is the kind of passion that I want to see from all filmmakers of any kind. And I think that that's clearly evident here. But some people will say, oh, it's distracting. Oh, it pulled me out of the movie. Things like that. But I think if you have a thematic reason why you're doing it, if it's in service to the story, then... Yeah, make that choice. Do it. Right. That's the whole key is making choices. Aster makes choices in his movies. He doesn't just kind of like, oh, well, it'll it'll just be whatever it is. We'll just do a whole bunch of medium close ups. Right. Like every single shot, every outfit, like the lighting levels, the placement of the flowers. Like, you know, that Aster made all of these choices to move closer to his vision of how he wanted everything to look. And how he was hoping that it would affect his audience, and the that... production design. Oh right, and Matt, I'm totally going to be I'm going to be standing this movie for production design and visual effects all the way throughout the year, and I know that the Academy is not going to yeah. come anywhere near this movie. Nope. But like I, I will definitely stand the production design. I, I'm right there with you, Dan. How can you and look I think at that's probably the likeliest. Yeah, it's like they built they created this whole community and it feels so perfect and lived in and real. Like it doesn't feel like a made up sort of thing. It feels like they actually found these buildings somewhere in Sweden and filmed there. There is a great use of space. Yes. Yes. Also just in terms of, you know, uh, Katie, you were mentioned before, um, like medium shots. There's um, a great use of wide shots. There's uh, clear geography just mm-hmm. laid out. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is one of those movies where, like I said, I want to go back and watch this again so badly. I almost get the sense that 
not every shot, like The Graduate, for example, but almost every single shot in this movie, I feel from a framing standpoint, tells you something about the character or the story. And once again, like it goes back to what we were saying before about just how meticulously crafted this movie is. It, It does not feel like it was shot and then... Aster said, okay, we'll find this movie somewhere in the editing room, yeah. or we'll, we'll fix that with visual right. effects later. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. This felt like yeah. it was, okay, today we're working on this shot to this shot, and if we don't get it, then we're working on it again tomorrow until we get the shot that I need for this in order to tell this story. Because like, there, there totally is a sense of geography, and he plays with it, and that I loved. Mm-hmm. Like, you generally know where everyone is, Like, you know, like, okay, well, the barn where they're staying is here. And then this is where they keep, you know, magic books or whatever. But then when they're all tripping, he plays with that geography and makes it seem like this place is now a hundred miles away. And it's impossible to even get to because they're whacked out of their mind. And then sometimes it feels like the community is very tiny. Like you can see all the buildings from one from one of the shots. Mm-hmm. And you and can see everyone who lives there. Yep. And so it feels like it's this constant question of how big is this group of people and how influential are they and how big is this plot of land? And I love that, that mm-hmm. you both know everything and no, nothing, because it's he plays yeah. with it at different times in the film. He has said uh, before in an interview somewhere, I can't remember where exactly, that uh, this movie, uh, he he's not going to go and do something like this again anytime soon in terms of um, shooting outside this much because chasing the <laughs> shadows and just trying to capture the oh, daylight, he yeah. said, was just a consistent nightmare for him yeah. on set. And I, I I have total total sympathy for the guy. <laughs> this does yeah. not look like it was an easy movie to shoot whatsoever. Right, it's um, like trying to shoot every single shot in the golden hour in that 20 yeah. minutes you get. Like, All right, we're shooting everything now and everybody better be in their place and ready to go or the whole day is, you know, fucked. And it wasn't even shot in Sweden. Where was it shot? It was shot in uh, Hungary. Oh, wow. Oh, a lot cheaper. Huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> All Final thoughts. Anything that we did not talk about, anything you want to reiterate, uh, Dan, I'll pass it off to you first. What do you got? I wanted to talk about one thing um, before we, before I moved on to my final thoughts, which was the crying baby. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh. Um, <laughs> did that seem like it was commenting on Danny's emotions at all to you? I, I don't know. Um, the answer is yes, but I don't know how. I, I do understand that the baby is crying through the night. And we've talked a lot about outward projection of emotion above grief instead of bottling it up inside of you. Um, a baby does not understand that concept. And if it's upset, it will let you know very quickly. Yep, and loudly. So that is my read on it right now. Anything deeper than that, I need a second viewing. Yeah, I feel totally the yeah. same. Is that there's something going on there, and I yeah. and at the, and it fades away, like it's only happening in those first few days that they're there, and then the baby stops crying all the time, and mm. so once everybody is engaged in the community, and so I totally agree. I need to see it again and like really think about that part. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so my final thoughts. Um, I I do so I. I did not like this quite as much as Hereditary. It didn't feel as tightly focused 
as that movie was. But then again, he's all Ari Aster is also working with a much broader range of ideas and um, emotional palette than he was in that movie. So that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, like I did not, I didn't, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I didn't connect to this movie as deeply as I did with Hereditary, but I certainly appreciate the hell out of it. I, I am like, I marvel at the craftsmanship. Like I bow before Ari Aster's altar. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. And it's re- really all the acting in this is it, the entire cast is just incredible. I mean, Florence Pugh is great, but I think Jack Rayner is going to be very underappreciated for his performance in this because it's incredibly subtle, but what he's doing is amazing. <laughs> How he very, the specific ways in which he creates Christian to be the way he is, I think is really amazing work. And I respect his bravery too to oh, demasculinize yeah. himself like this on screen this much. I mean, to really go there and show the negatives of this character and then to be completely humiliated by the end of it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you, Dan. He's not yeah. going to get the appreciation that he deserves uh, for this, but um, I'm right there with you. It, it's not like as good of a performance, I think, as Pew, but it is one of those things that it's kind of like the secret weapon of the movie of yes. why it works so yes. well on a story level. Absolutely. And also, Will Poulter is freaking hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Oh the vaping. <laughs> the oh, vaping. Constant vaping. God, he's such a dumbass. And that's perfect for it's it. So like, perfect. not Will Poulter, but the <laughs> yeah. character he's playing. Character. He totally perfectly encapsulate that, like, just stupid little frat boy that you just want to mm. slap so much of the time. Yeah. Talk about an actor who I, I've sung his praises before here on the show with uh, Detroit especially. But, like, with The Revenant, that, this, even a movie I didn't really like, The Little Stranger, man, is he a good actor. Yeah, he is. He is really, really great. And I am very much looking forward to the day where he's got, like, the lead in something and he just absolutely crushes it. Because I, right. I fully believe that he's got the range to do it. And it absolutely. pushes him outside of this zone. I want to see mm-hmm. Will Poulter yes. get to be, like, an like a dark emotional drama because yes watch totally a little stranger different. or then again don't but like <laughs> that's the that's the kind of part he has in that uh what's the grade dan uh i am at an eight out of ten okay all right katie so final thoughts i really wanted to talk for a second about aster's directing like that is like finding what part of a film is affected by the director, like really knowing like this is the director's skill. It's not just the editing and the acting and everything all coming together. Like it's really hard to pick out when it's a director that's really guiding the story and the film. And, you know, as people talk an auteur and mm-hmm. in hereditary, it's very obvious to me anyway, but then when you see it, Hereditary and Midsommar together, you can see his style and his ability to bring his cast together and his masterful direction of a story in that how he brings it from place to place to place and how he builds up his character's emotional arcs and all of that. And he is someone who 
there's a few directors working that within the past couple of years have released their first film. And he is one of the ones that I am the most excited to see where he gets to go, especially since he's made two very big art films yeah. that he'll get an opportunity. And I hope it continues to really show us more of his skill outside of this. I would love to see him do a comedic film and see how well that comes out. Because, oh, oh he has said his that uh, he's got dark. screenplays for a Western, a sci-fi film, a musical. He, a he musical. has stuff ready to go. God, oh, yes. I, his ability to find comedy in both Hereditary and this is just stunning. Yes, like, I agree. The, blackest of black comedy and I love it. He's probably the only person I can think of who could make something like as dark and almost comedically nasty as a serious man, which is mm-hmm. like, I don't know, three or four of my top movies I've ever watched list. Um, and he could do it, I think, because that movie finds this very dark place in humanity that if you're the right kind of person, that shit is hilarious. Yes. Hilarious. God, yes. Even if you're not Jewish, it's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and like, I just think he has so much to bring. And this movie hit me personally on so many levels that are like deep and close emotionally in the same way that Hereditary did. And I was so impressed and so glad that I got to sit down and watch this. And I will definitely go see it again because, and then I will buy it and watch it and watch it and watch it. Cause it's like, it's almost like mother for me in mm. how dark it goes. So, which if you know anything about me, Aaron Arofsky is my, one of my favorite directors and mother is his masterpiece to me. So, um, I would give this movie a 9 out of 10, I would say. And Hereditary is a 10 out of 10 for me. So it's almost there, but not quite. Okay, so for me, um, I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm going to just uh, try to summarize my final grade with this. Um, I gave Hereditary a 9 out of 10. And I remember that the reason why I gave it the 9 out of 10 was because I was trying to be kind to those who felt that the last 20 minutes were not for them and it felt totally different than what had come before. And I respect that. I get it. I kind of disagreed, but at the same time, I like I understood it. And I do think that it alienated a lot of people uh, in the end. I still think it is a horror masterpiece and it's one of the best I have ever seen in my entire life. Midsummer for me is a film that really goes for it in terms of just the scale of the story, the cast, the production value, um, the exploration of its themes, as we mentioned before. It doesn't, in my opinion, with uh, its opening scene, uh, what happens to Danny and her family, it, it doesn't strike the same nerve as what happened uh, to Tony Collette and Hereditary. And a lot of that was because of my own personal experience and a tragedy that befell uh, my family. So Hereditary for me will always have the stronger personal connection. Um, hopefully. Uh, well, not hopefully. I don't know. Um, I guess I'm trying to say I really hope that nothing like that ever happens to me. Not ever movie. Period. <laughs> but <laughs> what, I, what I'm ultimately uh, getting at here is that there are certain things that Hereditary does very, very well. And there are certain things that Midsummer I think, does better. And I think the two balance each other out for me. I can't say I like one more than the other, but if I had to, I would give the slight edge to Hereditary because I think that what Hereditary does better is it is a more concise 
story. But I think that that also works to Midsummer's advantage that it isn't a concise story also. So it's like I, I kind of can't really compare the two, but at the same time I can. I keep going back and forth. At the end of the day, I just threw my hands up and I was like, you know what? I really, really love this movie. I loved it for different reasons. And I'm going to go with a 9 out of 10 on this one. Although, admittedly speaking, I would rank Hereditary above it uh, still. Uh, that doesn't mean... Uh, take that for what you will. If the gun to my head, if I had to choose, you know, pick one. Hereditary <laughs> Midsummer. Uh, uh, hereditary. Okay, you know. <laughs> uh, but damn, is this movie just so 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 well made? I cannot deny the fact that it is just operating on a level that is so different than anything else that I've seen this year from the genre. Even us, another uh, follow-up film to a debut this year. I I I would. I would actually prefer I prefer Midsummer um, to to us because I do believe that while both are very very ambitious, I think that Midsummer nails its message and its themes just a tad bit more. Where Us is definitely I think more open to interpretation, more ambiguous, and maybe creates for a more frustrating experience in that regard. But hey, everyone's uh, range will uh, vary, you know. Uh, Oscar prospects, uh, production design. I can't really see anything else. I would love, 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 love for Florence Pugh to get some love the same way that Tony Collette did last year. But I think we all have to be honest with ourselves and realize that that is not going to happen. Uh, yeah, but I will no. see that uh, maybe not for the Oscars. Like she's got one in a thousand chance we're saying that way. But I think she'll mm-hmm. get some love at like the smaller like critics, I think she'll get some serious oh, yeah. critics awards and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think she'll definitely get recognition. I just, I think she's yeah. not a big enough actress and this movie is way too weird. For yeah. The no, this movie is going to be part of the, like Florence Pugh has arrived this year. Yeah. Nomination for something more Academy friendly, say little women. Yes. There we go. Totally agree with that. Yes. All right, so that'll pretty much do it for our review of Midsummer here on the Next Best Picture podcast. I think that we did a pretty decent job of touching on everything that I know I wanted to touch on. I'm actually surprised that we were able to do it. <laughs> but I don't think any uh, stone was left unturned with this one. And uh, I want to thank both of you uh, for getting us through it. I mean, I, this was a really, really great conversation. I hope everybody that's listening really, really enjoyed it as well. And I hope that they continue to keep revisiting this film and formulating new questions, new opinions. I think it's going to have a very long shelf life, and I'm really, really excited to see what Ari Aster does next because he has said that he's not going to do a horror film as his next film. But if he can bring the same level of craft that he has brought to Hereditary Midsummer to a different genre, I am all there for it. Like, give me an Ari Aster Western. I would die. Oh, God, musical, yeah. Musical. Imagine, like, a candy... A candy-coated, like, old-style 1940s musical with beautiful numbers, like, or even, like, a 1960s Marilyn Monroe musical. Like, mm-hmm. damn. It would be beautiful. <laughs> Who knows what he's got up his sleeve. Imagine a an even darker version of La La Land. Oh, oh gosh. Right. Die. <laughs> hey, you know what? Trey Edward Schultz supposedly has a musical coming out later this year. The guy did Cresha and It Comes yeah, at Night. So um... maybe we're in for something there, you know? We'll have to wait and see. All right. Katie, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at KT underscore Schaefer. What about you, Dan Bear? 
You can find me on Twitter at DancingDanOnFilm. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Midsummer here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us five stars. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support as well. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, if you type in Next Best Picture, subscribe to us. You will get some exclusive podcast content. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And we shall see you all next time. Yo, Dan, yeah. fuck that truck in the background. For real? Seriously. I, oh, God. It's I not been, your fault. It's I've not been, your fault, but I've I need to ask, acknowledge it. It was driving me nuts. I to ask you before we started if I should mute my mic. No, I'm you're fine. So you're sorry. fine. Oh, what's no, really what's totally really funny though is I'm sure like everybody that's like listening to this was gonna be thinking it and I'm gonna put this at the end of the podcast so that they know that we knew. <laughs> yeah, we were all and we all were cringing right along, like, oh god damn it, truck, shut up. Oh I even like thought, should we like pause and like come back to this later? And I was like, oh, screw it. It's too good. <laughs> yep, no. No. <laughs> what are you doing on Saturday? My luck can't be that bad. 